and welcome back to The Backstory. I'm Rachel Blevins here with my colleague, John Kiriakou. We're going to turn now to our next guest. Joining us now is James Carey. He's a writer, activist, analyst, and host of the Left is Dead podcast. James, it's great to have you on the show today. Hey, good to talk to you guys. Now, I know we just passed the 19th anniversary of the Iraq invasion. We're going to start there. There feels as if there are so many lessons that could be learned just from looking back at where the United States was 20 years ago. What is one of those major lessons that stands out to you, especially given everything the United States is facing today? I think there's two. One is Iraq taught us that we will never be able to project power the way we want to, right? We will never have an empire that is sort of hands-off, it runs in the background, and you know, nobody has to see it, but it will continue dominating the world, which was the thought, I think, probably after H.W. Bush in the first Gulf War, the idea of smart bombs and things like that. There's this plan to have the empire be in the background and a volunteer force. You know, you don't have to worry about it. But I think the U.S. has learned since Iraq that that doesn't project power the way they thought it would. They can't even take over a Middle Eastern country, let alone go up against Russia or something like that. And second... Um, I think we have seen a repeat of the tactics used to lead us into the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, and every other conflict at that point. And we're seeing that repeat in, you know, it's funny, Putin has sort of, Russia has absorbed these ideas of uh, chemical facilities or bioengineering facilities because that's our excuse. You know, so we're seeing, um, I think we're seeing our behavior imitated because we no longer have the monopoly of force here. And I think the Iraq war, like, that was what the big proof is, you know. And it, it's also proof we'll sink any amount of money into a project, no matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter if it's Iraq or the F-35. What about, um, what about Iran in the region? You know, one of the complaints that so many policymakers had at the start of the first Iraq war was that Iraq was was a bulwark against Iran, that Iraq was the only thing keeping the the small Gulf states from being, uh, you know, taken over by the Iranians. And certainly those small Gulf states are, are terrified of Iran. Uh, Iran hasn't been a problem for the states, but at the same time, its influence has been extended because of a weak Iraq. Do you see that ever changing? Um, no, I, you know, I'm not sure that it goes back. I think we're entering into a sort of multipolar situation. I will say that the relationship with Iran, I think we soured that early in the war on terror. The, the axis of evil speech really right. soured that, I think. Right. Um, because they were willing partners. I mean, they were. it's not like they were huge fans of the Taliban originally. No. In fact, you remember the Taliban executed, I think it was 14 Iranian diplomats just before 9-11. Right. And I mean, they weren't fans of Saddam. No, we know that. Um, Yeah, I don't think that, you know, I think they blew an opportunity both with Russia and Iran during that period. Yeah, because they snubbed, you know, they snubbed Russia as far as any type of influence on how the NATO campaign would play out. They put Iran on this arbitrary list of the new axis of evil, which thank a Canadian David Frum for that one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Out all their, even pushed out all their European allies at this point to the point where NATO no longer functions, clearly. You know, they can't make a joint decision on anything. And I think that all stems from that period in 2003 where we just decided to take charge of the whole thing and it was throw anybody we could under the bus, blame anybody for our failures, and connect anyone we could to al-Qaeda because obviously there was an agenda to go to, like, Tehran after we were done in Baghdad. But 
we got bogged down. We got stuck. But I think that, that 2003, even Turkey is in there and the nations we ruined relationships with over Iraq. And I think that that's something to examine. It, it, this war, well, the two wars really set us back. And I don't think that it's quite appreciated how much now, now that, you know, we've had Trump and everything. I don't think it's quite appreciated how much damage George W. Bush did to our diplomatic relations with a lot of countries. Oh, I so, I so agree with that. You know, I remember um, in, in the first Gulf War, 1990-91, uh, we approached the Syrians about joining this coalition that we had put together. And uh, again, this was Hafez al-Assad, who had a reputation as being one of the most ruthless butchers you know, in, in the region in recent history. And he agreed to join us. Uh, it, it was the Egyptians, actually, that, that went with us to talk to the Syrians, and the Egyptians said, you're going to want to do this. And so they joined us, and we opened diplomatic relations with Syria for the first time in generations. And, uh, and it worked. I, I mentioned earlier in the show, I went to Syria in 1993, and my boss told me before I left... He said, have a good time in Syria. He said, but you're never going to actually speak to an actual Syrian, right? They're going to be so afraid when they learn you're an American that nobody will even speak to you. Well, I went to the souk, to the bazaar, and this guy asked me where I was from. And I said, min al-wilayat al-mutahda, the United States. And he was like, what? He had never met an American before. He had never actually seen an American before. So two hours later... He shuts the shop down. I'm in his house having dinner with him and with his family. The Syrians couldn't have been any warmer. Then, when we go to invade Iraq in 2003, early 2003, we ask the Syrians to join us again. By now, it's uh, Bashar al-Assad. And uh, he said, you know, there's really nothing in this war for us. And we have to live in this neighborhood. And uh, we just don't think that, uh, that we want to be involved. Well, if you don't want to be involved, maybe we should shut down our embassy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if yeah. you want to shut down your embassy, which we did. We shut down the embassy. And then they said, well, at least let us have overflight clearance. So when we fly out of Interlake Air Force Base in Turkey, we can fly over Syria to bomb Iraq and then fly back. And he said, no, you can't have overflight clearance. Because that makes us a belligerent, and it puts us in a state of war with Iraq. Well, relations have never been the same. And next thing you know, there's the, the Arab Spring and the uprising, and then we start sending weapons and, and money to al-Qaeda, the Nusra Front, and it's just been a disaster ever since, and it's our fault. Yeah, absolutely. Look at Libya. Oh, Libya's worse than Syria. Yeah, and this was a man who voluntarily gave up weapons he didn't really possess to that extent. You yep. know, he gave up weapons of mass destruction that kind of didn't exist. I mean, Gaddafi did a nice show for the liberals, but he didn't really have much. And that still, you know, I think North Korea is the only one to learn the lesson, unfortunately. And that's well, there's a story there with Libya, uh, a story that's been told publicly, where the the former deputy director of the CIA went on a secret mission to Libya and said, "Look." We're going to overthrow Saddam Hussein, and he's going to die. And we're giving you the opportunity to give up your weapons of mass destruction, or you're going to face the same fate. And he said, take them. I don't want the weapons of mass destruction. And he turned everything over to us. And then we overthrew him anyway. 
So what kind of lesson does that send to people around the region? I mean, at the same time, what Saddam, what evidence did we find of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Literally none. The Russians went in to clear up Syrian chemical weapons after, you know, they had crossed, they had allegedly crossed Obama's red line. And the Russians went in to clean it up. I mean, you can dispute that however you want, but I dispute any U.S. claims about anything, too, you know, as far as anthrax or anything like that. Sure. 2003. But, yeah, I think that, yeah, U.N. inspectors didn't find anything. If you remember 2001, what did the Taliban say? Like, hey, you want bin Laden? We will essentially arrest him and turn him over to your custody. And that was not enough. You know, the plan was always to go into these places, Afghanistan to be used as, like, this new bulwark in Asia, and then just tear apart the Middle East, essentially, try and replace Saddam, but can't fire everybody with experience and expect that to go well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they just decided, I think that that's when the strategy kind of changes for the U.S. is uh, the Libya, like the Arab Spring era and like late war on terror. Um, I think that the strategy changes to like, if you don't want to join, we will just make this place a dumpster fire for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we will light it on fire. We will leave. Look at even Venezuela who just suffers from sanctions, no like direct attacks or anything like that. Um, we've decided if you don't want to participate in the global market and you don't want to play by our rules and we can't just put somebody in who does so, you know, we will go ahead and let your country burn. We'll let you have a coup like Egypt. And then we just pretend it didn't happen. We pretend it wasn't a coup somehow, you know, so we can keep selling them arms. So, and I mean, we all know, you know, we don't know the extent of it, but we all know that the Gulf states used quite a bit of violence during the Arab Spring and that was okay. But it's just that we don't have this room to dictate anything anymore like that. And we never did. Obviously, the Cold War was a disaster in a lot of places for us. But the the fact is, I think that they realize, well, fine, you don't want to give us your resources. You don't want to give us your labor. You don't want to give us access to anything. We will just wreck this so nobody can have it. You know, I think they want to just kick people out of the market system altogether. But now there's another one kind of building up on the other side of the world. So I don't know what they're going to do in the future. Yeah, it certainly is like the uh, selfish only child who doesn't want anyone else to play with at least what they think are their toys. Now, when it comes to a point that John mentioned, you know, the United States is getting more and more involved in these conflicts all around the world. And it's one thing if you're a nation in that region and you're looking at a conflict on your doorstep and you're saying, hey, I don't want to get involved in that. But what do you see as being really the long-term consequences of what the United States has done just over the last 20 years in the Middle East? I mean, it, it seems as though the U.S. establishment hasn't learned a lot from that. But what are the consequences that we're still dealing with today? I think it's just it's the Middle East. It's it's, it's expanded everywhere, right? I mean, um, as we go into Syria, we have Turkey shooting down a Russian jet and all of the NATO members essentially saying, well, you're on your own, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we have these Eastern European nations that are constantly terrified of Russia as the Western European nations kind of blow off their fears. Uh, we have terror coming in from Turkey into, like, Germany and places like that, and some people just don't acknowledge that. Uh, and then we have the U.S., who is stomped around Europe the past couple of years demanding this and that, and now Biden demanding, you know, the end of pipelines and things like this. Um, we've stepped on our own partners' feet so much that we have no, I don't think we have any friends, maybe the UK, sorry, but I don't think we have many friends. Uh, I think even somebody like Germany obviously has much more interest in dealing with Russia and being in the neighborhood, like with Turkey, you know, they are much closer to Turkey than they are to us. 
Um, and I think that they have these interests they have to weigh against. It's France. We just undercut France on the submarine deal for the yeah. billions. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're stepping on our own partner's toes. I mean, Trump went to South Korea and demanded they pay for the Patriot system, a thing that doesn't work. You know, so going around and just making these demands or undercutting our own partners at this point or trying to keep them from getting Chinese technology or Russian oil, like this is insanity because these are supposedly our friends. These are supposedly the people with the special relationship, and we have not held up any end of that bargain. We treat them just as we do anyone else, their clients. They might be a little bit wider and they might have a little bit more say, but they're still clients. Yeah, I think that's right. Hey, I wanted to get your thoughts about uh, developments in uh, China or developments between China and and Taiwan. Uh, The U.S. issued a warning or more specifically, a U.S. admiral issued a warning today or yesterday saying that these three man-made islands in the Taiwan Strait uh, have been militarized by the Chinese and that this is a direct threat to all naval traffic uh, going through the the straits. The Taiwanese are worried that the Chinese are going to use uh, Ukraine and Russia as, as something of a green light to allow them to make a move into Taiwan or make a move against Taiwan. Do you see any correlation between Russia, Ukraine, and China, Taiwan? Is is this something that that the United States and its allies should be worried about? No, I don't think so because I think China has like this is a weird Cold War, right? Because we have this nemesis who we rely on for everything, you know, and China kind of relies on shipping everything to us. We are a great customer base for them. Um, I don't think China does something that risks. The level of sanctions Russia is up against where we could – we would be shooting ourselves in the foot, but we could, you know, theoretically make some of their industries suffer a bit. And I think that China doesn't need to do that. China clearly has a much more long-term plan. Um, the planned economy clearly works to some extent because they have control over things like AI and their quantum computing, and we have it in the hands of, you know, these weird lizards. So uh, just lunatics, right? And Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. And I think that China, um, their plan is the long game. They may be building up these military facilities and things like that, but wouldn't you? I mean, what do we have all around us? We won't allow, you know, Iranian tankers to go to Venezuela. Right. Technically on another continent. Right. So I, I don't know. Which is actually an act of piracy under uh, international law. Yeah, and the fact that we think we have this whole continent that none of us live on, you know, blockaded off like this, essentially, it, to think that somebody couldn't do that to us or somebody doesn't have the right to do that to us is ridiculous. But I don't even think China needs to do that to us. I think China, um, when it comes to us, we will continue buying. I don't think we're going to find a way to reconcile that with any political party that's coming up now or any stars in those political parties. And I don't think that China is necessarily looking for that fight. And I think you'll go to places like in the global South where, boy, when people are presented with an IMF loan or mm-hmm. in development fund loan, they pick the, one from China. Nobody's yeah. got a gun to their head. They pick it, you know, and they choose to go this way. China's forgiven loans. China's built massive right. infrastructure projects in these countries and like Africa and things like that. So to think that it's the same, you know, when we go down there and offer an IMF loan and demand austerity, it's not because China will talk to whoever picks up the phone the next day. They don't, they're not concerned about your internal issues. Don't be concerned about theirs. And you got an agreement, you know, 
And I think that they have this long game planned out. And with the planned economy, they can do that. We cannot because we have so many competing factions of capital in this country that it's always going to fragment off. There's going to be these large cartels that fight against each other and they just live off government contracts. Yeah. Yeah, it That's certainly right. doesn't feel like uh, if there is a long game here in the United States, it certainly is not stable. Now, moving into the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, you know, it's interesting because we've talked a little bit about the political influence here in the United States. Now we even have members of Congress saying that they would support a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And anyone who pays attention to this pays attention to the deficit to the definition of a no-fly zone knows that that would be the precursor for World War III breaking out between the U.S. and Russia. What do you make of those members of Congress who say that they do support it? I mean, do they understand exactly what we're considering here? I, I highly doubt they understand much of what, what they're considering. Um, I think they think that, well, they think what they, you know, what any American exceptionalist would think. They think that if we put the force there, people will back down, right? And Boy, they've been putting force into Ukraine for eight years now, and that didn't stop Russia. So I don't – what's to stop Russia? It's going to be, you know, who goes first? Who's going to shoot this Russian jet first? And as we've seen, I think, again, returning to Turkey and Syria, shooting down the Russian jet, I, we've seen that. I don't think NATO has, you know, the spine to do that. I don't think NATO has the spine to confront them. And I heard you guys talking earlier, you know, you had, like, Madison Cawthorn calling out Zelensky – and saying, you know, I, he didn't want anything going to uh, Ukraine like that. But, I mean, yeah, welcome to the world of Ilhan Omar. You know, this is her in Israel. Um, you can't break out from this, though, because this is a foreign policy spending initiative. This is a this is a Cold War initiative, and we haven't had one of those in 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know? This is a way to build up these more – it's a scam, I think <laughs> – to build up these more sophisticated weapon systems, put more missiles in places like Poland and somehow in Turkey still probably, you know, and we're going to just, this is going to be a handout. I think you look at the stocks of like our more traditional Cold War era weapons, you know, things like missiles, like uh, Raytheon and things like this, they're skyrocketing because we're turning away sure they are. out of this technological stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Hey, you mentioned Venezuela a minute ago. I'm glad that you did. I wanted to ask you about uh, Venezuela. The Biden administration sent a delegation of Venezuela last week. It was made up of uh, the, U.S. ambassador to Venezuela, who's actually resident in Washington. Um, It was made up, uh, it was led by the presidential special envoy for hostage affairs and included the uh, National Security Council senior director for Latin American affairs. This was a pretty high level uh, delegation. And they met with President Maduro, whom they identified as President Maduro. Uh, They didn't meet with Juan Guaido, the pretender. They didn't even pretend to meet with Juan Guaido, the pretender. Um, And uh, whatever they negotiated uh, resulted in the release of two Americans from the Sitco Six, or at least one of them was a member of the Sitco Six, and they returned to the United States. So what little we know about this meeting was that we asked the Venezuelans with hat in hand to increase oil production. Now, Venezuelan oil is very, very dirty. It has the highest sulfur content in the world. And it can only be refined in the United States. In Texas, where, where our refineries tend to be, uh, they're equipped to handle this really dirty oil. 
So this is just as good for us as it is for the, for the Venezuelans. And it would also serve to help bring down the price of oil. Uh, there's no downside yeah. to this for anybody, right? I mean, we've been saying on this show and, and on others on the network for years now, that the United States needed to make it right with, with Maduro. You don't have to like the guy. You don't have to like his politics to know it's good for your country. Uh, do you think that we've yeah. turned a corner, or is this temporary just uh, until we can get through the oil crisis? This is the thing. It's, it's what does the relationship look like, say, after the Ukraine war is done? But at the same time, the, this is promising because once the U.S. has access to a resource, they don't typically like letting it go. Yeah. Um, and that is, but we'll be breaking the mold here because we'll be buying state owned resources, which we tend not to like to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was one of Saddam's sins as well. You know, nationalizing the oil. Yeah. Yeah. Statist economy. Yeah. You can't do that. And that was Venezuela's, you know, even though Venezuela had privatized it before Chavez, it was still a crime that Chavez was going to go ahead and use the oil profits to pay the people the things they needed, you know, instead of a few guys hanging out in Caracas and high-rises. Right. And you also, but I think the U.S. is desperate for a replacement, and I think that's the same with Iran right now. You know, there's been a lot of talks of the JCPOA coming back to life. Right. In some sense. And I think that there is a desperate rush to get some type of fuel resources, because, I mean, most of Iran's fuel is going to end up going to Europe. It's like contracts with Total and things like that. Um but I think it's to get both our allies to try and maybe warm them back up a little bit and to get us some type of economic activity and growing around oil and to split up anyone who might try to go with OPEC because it looks like the Gulf states, you know, have the potential to go rogue as far as we're concerned. Yeah. Go rogue being go to the other side. But either way, we consider that far enough, you know. And I think that that's a fear now. And there's no one else in that region who can replace that demand you can build a pipeline through israel i guess but if you're going to wait 10 years there's going to be a lot of cold germans you know so i think that there's just a mad dash to get not maybe not even get the resources but split up the oil producing countries around the world yeah the major producers so is there any amount of the united states admitting that it was wrong here i mean i know it's not the trump administration that's going to meet with maduro but it is the biden administration after we saw Juan Guaido fail spectacularly. I mean, is there is there a reason why they're just, of course, doing this quietly and not really making a big mention of the fact that they're going back to the guy who they previously said that they didn't recognize as the actual acting president of Venezuela? Uh, well, they're humble, you know. Um, they're ashamed because they've taken like eight L's in the last 20 years, basically. I, I think that they can't... It's hard to go down there and sell that, right? After what... You can no twenty years since the Bush administration saying it's communist and saying there's you know no private business. They lock up the resistance and then people had to watch Juan Guaido, you know, walk around for a year with a camera in his face from his cell phone. Yeah, and like the myths kind of fell apart there, and I don't think they want anybody to reexamine that. Really, I don't think they want somebody looking back in on Venezuela because when you do, you just literally, like I said, Guaido was free to walk the streets for a year. You know, he tried climbing the fence of Parliament. And I think when that you see that again and you see where we've arrived now, it might click with some people that like, hey, this was all really, really dumb and it achieved nothing. This guy stole money from Richard Branson, I guess. That's it. You know, 
And I think that it's, it's an embarrassment, as many of the projects are. We don't talk about Libya anymore, you know. We would talk about Haftar and, like, fighting the al mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. But we don't talk about the actual situation on the ground in Libya. Do we hear about Iraq after, say, the fall of Mosul? What do we know that came out of Mosul after that? Not much. Yeah. No. These losses are embarrassing to them, and, much like Ukraine— I think they're embarrassed, and it's not as severe in Venezuela. This isn't a comparison, but I think they're embarrassed about who they have to work with. You know, to them, it's just as bad to be working with the PSUV as it is to be with. Well, I guess it's not bad to be working with the Azov Battalion anymore, but as bad as it used to be working with the Azov Battalion before this war, right? I think they're embarrassed. It's just the same with Al Qaeda and ISIS. You know, Turkey was buying millions of gallons of ISIS oil. And I think we are just embarrassed by our partners. Look at the, the cover of the Atlantic this month is anti-MBS because he finally killed somebody that they like with Khashoggi. You know? Yes. I think that this, yeah, we're embarrassed by our friends because as everyone, you know, in this group has probably been saying for years, our friends are kind of bad. They're not really great people. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? We've got only a minute and a half left. I want to ask your impressions of uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Uh, for being Secretary of State, arguably the most important cabinet position that exists, uh, the guy has been AWOL. Uh, you know, even the, the week that the Russians moved into Ukraine, he was in the South Pacific dedicating a new embassy. And uh, you just, we can go days without ever hearing the name Anthony Blinken. What do you think about him? Got about a minute. They want to keep, I think they want to keep him away, honestly. I think Blinken was trying to run his own foreign policy shop. Mm. He was going out there and making sta- statements that contradicted the president. You know, they have they Blinken to be tough, and they had Kamala to go eat the trash that Biden was supposed to get. But Blinken, he he's kind of run off because I mean, this guy is always the guy. I think they pushed him off. He's always the guy who contradicts Biden, right? Anything Biden says about Afghanistan or anything like these, you know, these big major geopolitical conflicts over the last year. Blinken has always been giving a counter message, and it's the, clearly there's not coordination there. Or somebody at, you know, in the security services thinks they can get off, get away with this. Yeah, the Joint Chiefs think they can get away with it under Biden's nose, like they did Trump, I'd assume. And I don't think that's happening because I think at least Biden's, you know, losing it. But <laughs> man won't commit to things if he doesn't want to do them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably right. I hate to say it, but we are out of time. We'd like to thank our intrepid producer, Rod, our intrepid sound engineer, Saul. Thank you, Rachel, and congratulations on uh, on your first uh, episode of The Backstory. Thank you. It was great to be here with you today, John. Oh, thank you, and thanks to our callers. We had a lot of really terrific callers today. Thanks for joining us at The Backstory. Come back tomorrow. We'll be here, or at least Rachel will be here. I will be here. Have we'll a great night, everybody. 